welcome to Seattle on Tap. I'm Courtney Jacobson. And I'm Ashley Toten. Hi. Oh, hello. <laughs> How about this sound? Oh, I like that sound. That's a good sound. <sighs> How are things going? <sighs> Pretty good. Um, you and I just talked for way too long um, because... We have some, some, there was some tea to discuss. Oh, yeah. Um, but the state of the world is a little, um, I should say the state of the world's health is on in question right now. Yeah. And it's a weird time and masks are coming back. Yep, yep, yep. I have never really dropped mine much. <laughs> You know, living one of my two roommates. I mean, you could also <laughs> call her my daughter. Um, <laughs> is not vaccinated because of the whole not being old enough thing. So, yeah, we um, we continue to keep masked up because, well, yes, if we do get it, we are protected from like certain death. And hospitalization, we, um, you know, are not protected from passing it to her. And uh, she has a really horrible immune system from the whole, like, being born six weeks early thing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's been making me very nervous with folks with kids, my niece included. I'm, like, yeah. so nervous about them getting sick. My beer smells very fruity, like tropical. What is your beer? So my beer <laughs> has a somewhat funny story. Not like, <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious, but just kind of like, ah, ha, ha, that's cute and funny. Um, <laughs> last night, Gordon uh, walked down to Super Deli Mart with a friend of ours and, um, Towards the end of the night, he was like, hey, do you need a beer for tomorrow? Um, what's your story about? I'll see if I can find anything. And I was like, okay. So I gave him apparently very, um, what I thought was <laughs> quick, like, bullet points. Um you know, different people, different communication styles, especially between husband and wife mm -hmm. um, or just couples, <laughs> you know, um, he read it quickly, had no idea what I meant. Also, one of the words I wrote, he read it differently. His brain switched it to the word witchy, um. which is super hilarious because as soon as you hear what my story is you're gonna be like wait how um, <laughs> <laughs> either way it managed to work out because oh my god there goes my freaking wooden um coaster that i've dropped like that's i think the third time now mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe i'll learn probably not mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he goes, I feel like the coaster is the problem. The witchiest to me, and I was like, "Um, why witchy?" 
well, based off what you wrote, I'm like, no, 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 I'm not like, um, I'm not mad. Um, always down for witchy. <laughs> always happy about that. Just a smidge confused. <laughs> Where in the like quick bullet point type answer I gave you, did you get witchy? And he's like, well, you wrote that. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, either way, I'm down. This is good. So... I'm um, just going to now tell you what I'm drinking because it would be rude not to. Uh, I'm drinking Fluctuation, a double IPA from Equilibrium Brewing out of, where'd it go? Um, out of Middletown, New York. Um, and fun fact. It's about an hour and a half drive north of a town that I will later name, but it's where my story happens. And you, all you got to do, drive an hour and a half north from this town on the Garden State Parkway hmm. to hit this brewery. And um, there's not a lot of notes about what's in it or anything like that. There's a really cool art on the can of, like, the Aurora Borealis. Oh, yeah. That's real cool. Super neat. Um, it says, purchase cold, drink cold, keep cold. If it's not cold, ask why. <laughs> uh, it's 8.1% ABV. Ooh. Mm -mm -mm. yeah other than that i don't know a lot of info about it it um was brewed on may 4th <laughs> it smells like pineapple what do they say may the fourth be with you yeah oh yeah <laughs> i always forget about that until someone says it to me i'm like oh yeah that's today <laughs> <laughs> i did the same thing or I just slowly eye roll. <laughs> okay. So it smells really pineapple-y. Like straight up open a can of Dole pineapple juice. Luckily, that is not how it tastes. <laughs> the flavor is much smoother more of a hint of that kind of pineapple essence, if you will. <laughs> um, it's a hazy because my husband knows what I like. Um, and really nice color to it that you kind of what you would expect that hay straw kind of color good head retention that's that's one i've recently learned is a big deal <laughs> um that's what she said mm -hmm. <laughs> i actually kept saying that every time gordon kept telling me about the head retention on the beer he made i was like that's what she said I was like, I get it okay it's funny so anyway about the head retention i was like that's what he said <laughs> i get it you're a 14 year old girl shut up 
<laughs> but yeah, this is good. I'm happy about this. Real nice, real nice. Real nice. What are you drinking? Um, so as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago before we started recording, um, tonight, uh, Beverage Place Pub, where I work, is celebrating both their 12th and 13th anniversary of being in their new spot because of COVID. We didn't get to throw that party last year, which normally we open like a big fancy bottle of beer, usually Belgian, Mm -hmm. the entire crew from Georgetown Brewing in Seattle comes and does a tap takeover and we all go and toast in the men's room, which is a really long story, but which I will not explain right now because it's a very long story. Um, So because it's recording night and I Hmm. wanted to do that thing, I decided to bring a growler of one of my favorite beers from Georgetown Brewing home with me um, from the event. So I'm drinking the Georgetown Gusto Crema Coffee Cream Ale, which is deluxe. Um, As I mentioned, Georgetown is in Seattle in the Georgetown neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, For folks that aren't familiar, this is a super yummy cream ale built on the Gusto Crema blend, which is a medium roasted bean from Cafe Umbria here in Seattle, whose coffee, by the way, is so fucking good. Oh. So fucking good. Um, It's a really smooth, roasty, and rich cream ale with a robust aroma. Um, This beer takes its roasted flavor, aroma, and color from cold brew coffee. Um, It has a really smooth, rich mouthfeel, which comes from oats and Munich malt, as well as the addition of lactose. Um, It also won a gold medal for the coffee beer category at the Great American Beer Festival in 2016. And it is fucking delicious. It's also 4.9%. So I might drink the whole growler is what I'm saying. Heck yeah. Uh, Georgetown was a beer lifeline for Gordon and I (laughs) during the um, like height i guess of lockdown for us like the the very first of everything being okay everybody shut down we're figuring out how to do to go something you mm-hmm. know <laughs> and they were doing a really awesome uh growler thing where um you know do a deposit what I, a lot of people were doing really cool growler i mean beverage place was also doing it but um so i think it was like a ten dollar deposit but then when you bring back a growler you could either just get your ten dollars back or you do like a swap and then you know they just hand you one that's already filled it was yeah it's a good deal yeah yeah and their growlers were like really, really good, good priced. (laughs) And they were doing a ton of uh, just specialty ones. I mean, they always do some specialty ones that you can really kind of only get in certain places or at their tap room. But uh, they were really putting out the beer. Uh, They knew, they knew what we needed. (laughs) (laughs) And just having fun with it and 
we enjoyed a lot of a lot of our beers. They were delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Happy anniversary anniversaries to the pub. Yeah. Um, but also next year, assuming that it's safe to do so, I will cheers Manny, Roger, Gary, and all of the peeps in the bathroom, in the men's room. And maybe I'll sneak in. You, yeah, you will. <laughs> next year, I'll be like, we're going. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take off work early. We'll record early and then we'll just go. Yes. Sounds like a plan. All right. <laughs> oh oh i think you you had another thing oh very quickly yes. um i thought you would find this super amusing and i thought everybody else might too but on my way home today it is a bazillion degrees outside in seattle and i was like like 80 yeah 84 degrees warmer than i want it to be so i um, took my hoodie off today she perspired slightly everybody i didn't um, <laughs> if it gets to 87 look out yeah i was not not a happy lady um so i decided to grab some slices of pizza on my way home mm. and go in and these very very young girls while i'm waiting for my slices come in that looked to be like 16 but evidently were 21 and oh. I was going to say, was this the usual little stop, but no, judging, but it wasn't. No. Okay. Okay. So they walk up to order and the bartender says, do you have your ID? Mm -hmm. And I'm eavesdropping because I can't help myself. I'm a grown ass lady that listens to other people's conversations too much. Can't help it. To stay entertained. Yeah. And I hear one of the girls say, I don't have my ID, but I do have my temporary, which in the state of Washington, when you renew your driver's license or get an ID, you get a paper printout. And the bartender proceeds to unfold this wadded up piece of paper that this little girl hands her and read it word for word, the entire thing out loud to her that essentially says... It is valid for driving. It is not valid for identification. Mm -hmm. And this young lady looks at her and she goes, seriously? I mean, will you take my passport? And oh, at which point I turn my, my head damn near does a fucking exorcist move and spins right. all the way around. And the bartender no informs her. Player, but several of them just went. <laughs> and the bartender says, honey, that's an ID. And she goes, it is? And that exact voice. And I went, oh, you're not old enough to drink. You have to get out of here. <laughs> I almost fucking died. I'm like, how do we not understand? You're old enough to vote and drink, but you don't know that your passport is a valid form of ID. What is happening? How, <laughs> how, how did she get a passport? They're not easy to get. Like, her parents oh, i just yeah. had to share i was like oh bless her heart she doesn't know stuff it's fine <laughs> i have a lot of questions none of them are nice so i'll stop the bartender's face was like you just made me read this entire fucking piece of paper and you had id this whole time 
Yeah. And I was giggling and the bartender made eyes at me and then went about her business. But I was like, wow, that's a bummer. <laughs> oh, I just got an, a realization of, I think I know where this was. Cause that, that, that personality tracks at this place that I'm thinking it is. <laughs> Oof, it was a lot. I was like, holy shit balls. Yes. Passports R.I.D. There in case are, you didn't know. In fact, more reputable as far as reliable forms of ID than your state issued ID. Yeah. <laughs> Especially Washington State. Yeah. Well, there's others that are oh yeah. Worse, but yeah. We don't do the whole background. I don't know. There's stuff certain checks we don't do anyway yeah not good not good we're not that kind of bat we're not that kind of podcast we don't know those types of details no although that might, might be my new podcast i'm gonna just drag on and on about ids for an hour and a half <laughs> so it's like a um like a deep dive one series kind of thing it's going to be like visiting the social security office Oh God! for an hour and a half every week. <laughs> I'm just so kidding. That would be a uh, torture. <laughs> so it's something that you play for um, getting guests to leave your house. Yes. Yes. You put it on like at whatever hour you want the, the, uh, the family to leave on what ha whatever holiday you all got together and you're like exactly oh, i'm done with the family now time to put on this podcast you got it nailed it <laughs> also maybe helps you sleep probably helps you sleep yeah <laughs> safe to assume it's like putting on golf on tv i'm like oh it's nap time <laughs> um unless i'm mistaken it is my turn to go first this week. Speaking of sleeping, none of you will. Um, you do. <laughs> it's going to be nothing but nightmares. Are you ready for a story this evening? Have beer, we'll listen. Or morning. For some of you, it's probably a morning. Let's be honest. Or lunch. Breakfast beers. All right. Um, I am doing the story this week of the Hampton Roads Killer, which the expression on your face speaks volumes, and we will get to that in my story. Okay. So tonight we will be traveling back east to southeast Virginia to the Hampton Roads metropolitan area. This area is named for the body of water of the same name that it surrounds. Um, there is a huge military presence in Hampton Roads, namely the headquarters of the Navy's Atlantic Fleet. Uh, its downtown area is full of bars and clubs, cheap motels, and also has the contrasting miles of beachfront properties. Hmm. And with a busy metropolitan area comes an active nightlife. 
while lots of folks may just head out and have a nightcap or a cocktail here and there, there are lesser advertised attractions in these places um, that can be pretty easy to track down if one tries, namely sex work and illegal drugs. Uh Um, Unfortunately, within these communities where drugs are sold and sex work is prevalent, so is crime, including murder. 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 Um, As we've all heard through the endless stories, not just on this podcast, but in general, um, serial killers frequently prey upon sex workers and folks living, quote, end quote, um, high-risk lifestyles. Mm. We also know that solving crimes against these folks have historically been extremely difficult to solve sometimes. This is specifically due to the carelessness um, and lack of respect of said victims by law enforcement themselves. And sometimes that's because the witnesses are scared to come forward for whatever reason, which is usually a very valid reason. Yeah. (laughs) In the case of today's story, um, the victims are gay men and in some cases are closeted, many associated with sex work and all um, have substance abuse problems either in the drug or alcohol realm or both. Hmm. Just outside of the bustling cityscape of this region in the late 80s, um, bodies started turning up off of some of the back roads. And we're just getting into it. (laughs) I think I, oh, I'm gonna. I'm like, I'm trying to read your face. (laughs) I'm like, everything okay? You doing all right? Well, I had a, wait a minute. And then I'm like, wait, no. That happens a lot where I'm like, that sounds like, but you know, there's so many that sound alike. <laughs> it's true, unfortunately. Yeah. On July 17th, 1987, the body of Charles Smith was found. Charles had been strangled with the use of a ligature. Um, he was found wearing a pair of jeans and sneakers, but nothing else. The next summer on July 19th, 1988, Joseph Ray was found in Chesapeake, but wasn't included in the list of potential victims until later in the investigation because his murder was actually being investigated by state police um, based upon where it was found. So they didn't speak to the other authorities like that happens a lot. Yeah. Also, Charles, the first victim, by the way, um at some point during the investigation of this case was excluded from the list because he was wearing clothing okay yeah so about six months later uh 21 year old stacy renault was found strangled and nude on january 7th of 1989 john ross jr and billy Lee Dixon were both found naked just off of roadways, both strangled about five months apart. The next winter, Reginald Joyner was found murdered in a similar fashion, March 7th of 1993. And then on March 28th, 1993, Ray Bostick was found by a man returning from running errands. And the man had driven down the rural dirt road from his home about 30 minutes or so prior to discovering Ray's nude body. Um, it is known now that Ray's body was dumped within that 30 minutes, although there didn't appear to be any 
obvious injuries to the body when it was found. An autopsy later revealed that he would also been strangled. I recognize that name. Robert Neal, whose remains were discovered on September 8th, 1993, were found in a similar way to Ray Bostick. Um, Robert's body was found by a passing motorist around 10 a.m. After interviewing any and all motorists that they could come in contact with um, that may have been in that area that morning, one woman claimed to have been on that road within the hour that Robert's body was found and said she didn't see anything on the road. And he was practically on the road. Like he was dumped barely off the road. Um, again, this implies that the killer literally just waited until nobody was around and dumped the body. Yeah. And this case, his body was in a further state of decomposition that would imply that the killer probably had possession of the body for several days. And this was actually the case for a few of the victims. A couple of things that later helped connect the victims was that Robert was a homeless man who had often stayed at the Union Mission in Norfolk, Virginia. Three other victims were also known to stay there at that shelter. Um, Robert's body was also found within blocks of where the first victim's uh, remains were found, which is very strange. Yeah. Other connections were being made between the men. Aside from the Union Mission connection, it was discovered that six of the victims frequented the same bars in downtown Norfolk. Hmm. During the investigation, suspicion briefly fell on a man named Raymond Onley, who was 23 at the time. He was connected to a death that occurred in that area around the time that was later ruled accidental. And if you're wondering what the fuck that means, a 15 year old girl got drunk. He picked her up and then abandoned her for whatever reason. And she died of exposure in a field. Oh man. So that's a real treat. Um, while looking into Raymond, it was revealed that he was a gay man and that he had known a few of the victims. So of course he was on their radar. And when Raymond found himself on North Carolina's authorities radar for potential drug possession a few weeks or so later, his trailer was searched where they found some homemade sex movies, some hair clippings that he kept in a velvet bag and a ton of satanic books and other occult paraphernalia. I was going to say. <laughs> These findings brought him even higher on the suspect list in Virginia. However, although super fucking creepy, none of the items in his possession linked to any of the known victims. Mm. So <laughs> probably wasn't him. Uh, the homicide detective on the case at this point set up an interview to just have an appointment with Raymond because he kind of had already decided that Raymond probably wasn't the killer. And mathematically, he would have been like 16 when some of the first murders happened. And he found that very unlikely. Um, but he knew a lot of the victims. And so he thought maybe he could get some helpful information from him. Unfortunately, that meeting was set for 9 a.m. on February 28th, 1994. Um, but before the detective got there, Raymond took his own life. Mm. Um, everybody's probably thinking, wow, that seems super fucking suspicious. 
However, after Raymond's death, the murders kept happening. Yeah, he was... Uh, Maybe a cuckoo person, but not... But also... Not a serial killer, probably. He was um, a gay man that was probably tortured for being who he was, so... Yeah, totally, especially in that area. Mm -hmm. Um... So clearly this case had authorities thoroughly stumped. Um, their only real connections to the murders were that all the men were known to have male sexual partners, although not all of them were out gay men. Mm-hmm. And aside for previously mentioned quote unquote connections, they struggled to find any other single person other than Raymond who connected to all of them. And also adding to the difficult connections was the fact that the men were all of different ages, ranging from their early 20s to late 30s, and were all different races and from different backgrounds, which is highly unusual for a serial killer. So they were thinking, okay, is there more than one killer operating with the same MO? Or were they overlooking something really fucking obvious? Yeah. So several men from local gay bars were interviewed as well as local sex workers. They just started hitting the street and trying to figure out any connection they could find. The gay scene in that area wasn't a big scene. um, And it being in the South wasn't always a very welcomed scene. So South and really nearby a major military base. Totally. Exactly. A very uncomfortable situation. Um, for that community. Um, Several of the witnesses they talked to said that they recalled seeing several victims leaving with a man in a van. However, none of the men's accounts of what the van looked like matched. It seemed that the police had reached yet another dead end in their search. And so they kind of were stuck doing nothing. But then on September 17th, 1994, two young boys riding their bikes down a back road started smelling a strong odor as they passed a ditch. Oh, no. The boys ended up finding the remains of Garland Taylor Jr., who had been missing for three days at this point. He was nude and also had been strangled. On May 14th, 1995, Samuel Alif, who was 31, who was a transient, was found on a dead-end cul-de-sac. And just like several other victims, his body was dumped in a very small window of time. Only this time, a police officer pulled onto the cul-de-sac to finish up some paperwork. And, you know, he had just left a call. 15 minutes later, a passing motorist spotted Samuel's remains and called it in. He had basically driven off and somebody dumped the body within that 15 minute window, which is risky and bold. Like you're a special flavor of douchebag to pull that kind of shit. Um, It wasn't until the next day, May 15th, 1995, reminder, the shit started, the first murder was 87. Mm -hmm. May 15th, 1995, the police confirmed the possible connection of all the men's murders. Jesus. And f- formally announced that there was probably a serial killer at fault. Authorities opened a tip line and offered a $5,000 reward to get anyone to come forward with any information to help, cal- help catch the killer. 
seven months passed and they weren't getting any new info. They weren't getting anybody calling the tip line. Um, and they weren't any closer to catching the Hampton Roads killer. And a lot of the investigators got reassigned to other things within the department. And all of these were now considered cold cases. Cool. Yeah. But then January 27th, 1996, the remains of Jesse Spence were found. And then six months later, on July 22nd, 1996, the body of 38-year-old Andre Smith was found. Thankfully, this time, friends of Andre, who had reported him missing, gave very detailed accounts of Andre's activities up until his disappearance, and even said the name of who the last person he was known to be seen. And they also told police that he was known to take money for sex and that he had gone to collect money from somebody. And the name, the name, the name they gave uh, police was Elton Manning Jackson. Mm -hmm. So Elton was a 40 year old openly gay black man who folks later interviewed said that he was known to frequent sex workers and that he was also just in general willing to exchange drugs and money for sex, whether or not it was a sex worker. So meaning addicts. If an addict came to him, he would be like, you do a sexual favor, I'll hook you up. Yeah. Naturally, police immediately got in touch with Elton, who investigating officers described as acting very strangely during their conversations. Mm -hmm. He seemed very nervous and jittery. And during their initial conversation, which was specifically um, about Mr. Smith, uh, claimed to have never met Andre, didn't know who he was, but recalled hearing and hearing his name and seeing his picture in the news the investigators didn't buy any of that shit and in may of 1997 elton manning jackson was arrested after some of the victim's dna had been found on his bedding um yeah it was also confirmed via dna that jackson and andre had had sex before his death and by the way jackson's dna was not collected voluntarily it was taken from cigarette butts down on his car after his arrest. Huh. Uh, Elton Jackson was now going to trial for the murder of Andre Smith, who was the only victim that they had a hundred percent chance of providing all like covering all their bases on DNA. Except. Witness, you know, we have witnesses. We, they had all the things yeah. basically. Um, both disgusting and noteworthy. Setting the jury for this trial took a couple of attempts due to several jurors initially selected asking to be removed from the panel based on their own biases, based upon both the victims and suspects race and or sexual orientation. Fuck those people. Yeah. Again, 80s and 90s in the South near a naval base. Yeah, fuck them. Finally, the trial was underway and Jackson took the stand in his own defense and he maintained his innocence through the whole thing. And when he was asked why he initially lied to police about knowing the victim, he said, quote, I was scared and afraid. I'm black and I'm gay. Andre and I had a nice time that weekend and then he turned up dead. Elton was convicted of first degree murder on August 21st, 1998. Um, during the trial, it was revealed, excuse me, it was not revealed 
why it took until May of 1997 to arrest Jackson. Mm -hmm. And on the subject, the editor-in-chief of a monthly gay newspaper in the area named Kirk Reed said that the local gay community found the lack of urgency to arrest and, excuse me, to arrest the person responsible for killing local gay men, quote, disturbing. And then he went on to say, Elton Jackson is not an Einstein serial killer, even if he is a serial killer. If the victims of these crimes were white suburban teenagers who were church going folks, they would have wrapped this shit up a long time ago. I was going to say, if it had been the little blonde white girls. Yeah. Jackson later filed an appeal in 2000, which was denied naturally. Um, during that appeal, three separate men testified claiming that they had all had sex with Jackson during the time that he was actively killing. And all three claimed that he had tried to strangle them, but that they all had been able to get away. Um, a couple of them were sex workers. One was a friend, hmm. um, or not even just a friend, a roommate, hmm. um, who claims he had to run through the woods to get away from him kind of a situation. Very bad. Um, it wasn't clear during my research if any of these men had reported their attacks previous to this testimony, mm -hmm. but the men's testimonies were considered to be hearsay in court um, and were not considered during the judgment of that appeal, which still was denied, but still they didn't even entertain the fact that he may have attacked other people. Hmm. Although he never tri was tried for the 11 other men's murders, there are enough connections that it's probably safe to assume that Elton Manning Jackson is responsible for their deaths, although we may never know for sure. Mm -hmm. It's also worth noting that once Elton Manning Jackson was arrested, the murders did stop. Well. So that is very possible. However, the investigation, as I'm sure you can mostly tell, was not done well. And the reason I didn't, I was curious if you actually had heard of it, was I had to pull up legal documents to write my story because they don't, there is no information. There they were, don't talk about it. Yeah, there were like two names that I recognized. Otherwise, no. It mostly seems like a case that was a combination of initially people not caring about it. Yeah. And then once it came into light was maybe a attempt to sweep it under the rug and not right. gain a bunch of attention to it. Especially but yeah, um, that was a very hard story to read about too. Um, oh my God, I can only imagine. His typical MO was again, finding desperate men mm -hmm. who either needed money or drugs, and he would convince them to have sex with him, but then would basically pin their head down, wrap something around their neck and just strangle them. It's still really confusing though. Oh yeah. It just like the, Usually, you know, serial killer stuff is so much more, I don't want to say deranged, but like there's so much, it always seems like there's more to it. Like there's a level of hatred. There's a level of 
something more to it. So... I mean, he could have had a power trip by being the person that they had, they were dependent upon. Because, I mean, Sam Little also killed different ethnicities and all over the place. And His mom was a sex worker, though, and he... So that's the thing. I guess I don't know whatever the background is that the back and mm -hmm. it is like impossible to find i wanted to dig up dirt on this dude and i couldn't find anything maybe it's like a projection like hatred of himself because of the time maybe maybe 80s 90s when you know it's you know 80s that's coming off the height and so yeah 80s is kind of coming down like sort of coming off the height of the AIDS like peak of the AIDS epidemic and like everyone blaming only gay people especially gay men for it even being anywhere and then which is um, not a thing by the way right. <laughs> it was just yeah, scapegoat, but um, they suffered more because nobody gave a fuck about them. And mm -hmm. yeah, we could go on about that. Different story. We really could. Um, but also early 90s was when gayness was starting to be in the news a lot more. It was starting, it was way more of the like conversation, the debate about everything. It was... I remember it being a big thing in about that time where it was like, remember the, um, uh, with the Clintons being, uh, the don't ask, don't tell and all of that stuff. And so, I mean, especially in that area, again, not okay to be gay because people were awful. And so maybe, maybe, maybe it was a projection thing of like hating himself for not being accepted because that acceptance in your community, just acceptance at all is one of those core basic human needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, he lived in Portsmouth, but I don't know what he did for a living I don't know. Like, those are all things I wanted to know the answers to. Because I was like. Who was he? What about him? Like, what's his story? If he did drive a van, was it a personal van? Was it a work van? If, you know what I mean? Like, was yeah, he like a Gary Wid Ridgeway kind of a thing? Or, you know what I mean? Different ones every day or something. So it made it easier for him to, or did he work for a, um, some sort of delivery service or yeah like car what have you or i want to know all the deets but it was like pretty much impossible to find like i like i spent in one day spent like seven hours just digging through <laughs> like wow. files and documents and couldn't find shit wow i was getting so irritated <laughs> I was yeah. like, somebody tell me something. I would have given up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's enough. There's not enough. I gotta, next. 
Oh, man. Wild. I mean, and that, I mean, it's, it is a, uh, what's the word I want? It's an, a testament to the fact that there are still a lot of stories out there that we just don't know because certain people at certain times in our history were considered lesser than and not worthy of us knowing their stories. And so, and I mean, it's also like, there's a bazillion different things that serial killers are after, mm -hmm. you know, it's not always like you, like I'm a big horror movie nerd, but it's not like the 80s movies where it's like a bunch of teenage girls with big poofy blonde hair having a sleepover and that's what the serial killer wants you know what i mean like yeah yeah it really could be anything i mean uh again good example is um S sam was yeah. fucking his thing was if a woman touched her neck it was a sign yeah. sam little literally if you have let's say you had a goddamn mosquito bite and you touched your neck, he'd be like, she's going to die today. I'd be That's... gone or if he'd ever seen me because <laughs> instantly rubbing my neck from chronic pain. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a terrifying world we live in. Yeah. That's my point. And it is not just yeah. always women. It's vulnerable people in general. Yeah, man, or just people in general. Ugh. <laughs> I hope you have a more uplifting story. Um, I don't Your know. face says no. <laughs> it's a weird one, so it's. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's. Yeah. <laughs> okay let's take a quick break yes i need more gusto crema so there we go <laughs> okay be right back <laughs> should tell you a story now i feel like it's I'm ready it's only fair courtney have you heard about the westfield watcher no all right so we're going east coast yes <laughs> east coast all day <laughs> so today i'm going to tell you about a pretty strange and uh well a pretty creepy new home purchase that a family of five made in June of 2014. So the Bratis family or Bratis, it's Bratis. You know what? We're going with Bratis. Um, Derek and Maria, husband and wife, and their three children, 
purchased a six-bedroom colonial-style house in the super-rich neighborhood of Westfield, New Jersey. Mm. Yes, we're talking like celebrities own homes in this area, like their biggest crime problem is, you know, occasionally people park wrong on the street it's it's like a you know it's a bougie rich people old white money kind of neighborhood and you know celebrities so um for example um in 2018 bloomberg ranked the town of westfield as the 99th richest city in america and uh it was the 18th wealthiest in new jersey is this anything to do with the mob with the wealth it doesn't hmm. that i know of some of it maybe i mean probably at least a few but um <clears throat> it's also a lot of like those um like hedge fund people because it's not terribly far away from new york city that you know hop on a train go into work those guys that like have an apartment in the city but their family home is you know in their affluent neighborhood kind of a deal yeah um all right so the house the broadduses bought uh, for $1.3 million, $1.3 million of $2014. That's a lot of dollars. Yikes. Was at 657 Boulevard. So that street, the boulevard, the boulevard, was the most desirable street to live in for all of Westfield old old growth or semi old growth trees lining a very wide street you know just very idyllic like picture any you know ridiculous movie scene with the perfect you know quote perfect neighborhood and it's better than that or whatever so one night about three days after closing on the house Derek um, brought us was at the new house spent the evening painting and you know finished up painting a few of the rooms steps outside you know to get some fresh air and decides ah, just look in the uh, the mailbox that's right outside and um, obviously they just bought the house so it's not like it's gonna be important or even relevant mail probably just junk mail flyers or something that needs to be forwarded to the previous owners but he's like you know step outside get fresh air and while i'm here look in there absolutely not expecting to see anything for him however he has a letter there is a card shaped envelope with very like 
clunky, chunky, big black lettering um, that says the new owner with the address. Um, it's probably and- one of those musical cards fucking things. Well, just part sized <laughs> envelope, but I'm just it was a mailed, I do hate those cards. Yeah, it was a mailed envelope addressed to the new owner. Spooky. No return address, of course. Um and it had a typed out note inside. Starts out Dearest new neighbor at six five seven Boulevard. Allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Starts out pretty sweet. Like, okay. I mean, it's super wealthy neighbors, neighborhood, so I don't know. I don't know what rich people do. Maybe it's some sort of bougie thing that neighbors do, like welcoming each other. Who knows? Then it continues. Um, <laughs> how did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call you? with its force within and now we're creepy 657 boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now and as it approaches its 110th birthday i have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming oh hell no i would have been like Oh my God, Bruja, we got to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Move out fast. Where's the sage? Let's burn it. Let's call burn. somebody. Like, something's got to happen. We got to clear some energies. Got to set up some cameras. I don't know. Quick, grab the sage, burn the house. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I should write that down. God, I'm sorry. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. What the fuck, Courtney? (laughs) What the fuck? I agree. It makes all the little presents my neighbor keeps leaving me seem so precious. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, my. I almost worry that I should edit that out. Patience we've had. (laughs) Okay. So... Background here. Uh, the, the house was built in 1905. And um, buying in this specific neighborhood was a life goal of the Bradises or Broadises. Um, Maria actually grew up just blocks from this very house at 657 Boulevard. Derek, however, grew up in Maine in a working class family he worked his way up to senior vice president at a manhattan insurance company so 
just after his 40th birthday in June of 2014, they closed on their dream home and decided to do a few renovations before actually moving into the house, as people do when they buy an old home. I mean, ours was built in 42. We didn't move in for like a full month before, you know, after buying it because, or after getting the keys because we want to do some renovations and um anyway so the letter continues oh boy <sighs> mentioning um the family's minivan saying something about seeing their honda minivan pulling up and also mentioning the workers that the Broadus family had hired to, you know, help with these renovations. Um, and says, uh, quote, I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Ooh, wait. <laughs> uh, now the now the house has feelings? I don't, <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. I asked the Woods, that's the family that owned it before, or the couple that owned it before. I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Once, oh, sorry, once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Uh, a uh, fuck no. I'm sorry. Don't, don't prank, don't bring your creep factor into anything <laughs> revolving my child. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Fuck no. Keep your creep show to yourself, buddy. Yeah. So the letter continues to ask if they needed to fill the house with new blood. And he says, better for me. Something about, uh, was it greed that to bring you, or sorry, was it greed to bring me your children? Or do you need room to grow your family? The creepiest part, um, the letter draws attention to who it could be, or um, I guess that there's no real way to really know who it is that's writing these letters. Um, like I said, there's no return address, and the signature of this typed out letter is also in like a it's typed out, but it's like in a signature font and it just is signed the watcher. Mm -mm. It says, who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Ugh. 
Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard and all the people that stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Oh, no. Ugh. I hate no, it. No, no, no. It gives me chills even reading it. <sighs> so, um, again, Derek just got keys to this house three days ago. Uh, Finalized uh, everything three days ago. Spends his evening doing some painting. Goes outside, reads this letter, freaks the fuck out, runs around the house, goes back inside, runs around the house, shutting off all the lights because now he's like, fuck, somebody's watching me. Yeah, I would have been flipping the fuck out. Yeah. Same. I probably wouldn't have even bothered to lock doors, turn off lights or anything. I would just been like, bye. Do I have my keys on me? Okay, let's go home. Never again. <laughs> house is up for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, then he does the logical thing and he calls the cops. Mm -hmm. Uh, they tell, they come by officer reads the letter, looks at him and goes, what the fuck is this? They have a conversation. The cop says, don't say anything to your neighbors because... Quite honestly, at this point, anyone can be a suspect. Very comforting. Thank you, officer. Cool. Cool. As Good if talk. I can't feel alone enough. Neat. <laughs> so when Derek gets home, because, you know, he's going to leave that place as soon as possible, um, tells Maria about everything. They decide, let's email the previous owners. Because it mentions, I asked the woods to bring me new blood. Looks like they did. So this is like, okay, did they get, you know, this person mentions that their family has been watching this place forever. And so, okay, let's check with the owners. Did they ever get any of these or the previous owners, you know? So they... They email them, they ask John and Andrea Woods if they knew who it could be, asked why they had written, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. And, you know, like, what is this even about? What is this some prank? It, do you, you know. So, Andrea Woods replies the next morning saying, actually, we got a letter right before moving out. And she thought it was odd, but never really thought much of it, much of, you know, past that. Um, it was the only letter they had ever gotten in the, 20, the 23 years of living there. She basically says, um, I mean, honestly, it wasn't that bad. It just was like, thanks for looking after the place. Um, so another letter arrives roughly two weeks after the first one had gotten there. 
Now, instead of being addressed to the new owners, it is addressed to the Braddis family, but it's spelled wrong. So their name is B-R-O-A-D-D-U-S, like Broadus. Mm-hmm. Broadus. But this person addresses it to B-R-A-D-D-U-S. So gives you the impression that it was they heard the name, mm-hmm. but didn't read it or anything. And uh, cringe. Um, also, the three kids by their nicknames and in birth order. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. The children were 10 years, 8 years, and 5 years old at the time. So, you know, between that, you know, first day that they see this, they get this letter, and, and now, you know, about two weeks later, um, the family had, you know, they had been, they had had contractors in and out of there. And so occasionally they have to go up to the house and, you know, check on things as they're being done and, you know, pay people, whatever the case is, meet someone there, um, check on work that's being done. You're paying a lot, a lot. I'm assuming paying a a shit ton of money for these renovations. Mm -hmm. And so while they're there, obviously they're, kids are with them it's not like they're gonna get a babysitter just so they can run up to this house real quick and then go back and go about their day um so there are times when like they're there talking with contractors kids are playing with other neighborhood kids maybe in the backyard whatever but of course tensions are a little heightened because of that letter Mm -hmm. the first one they had gotten so if the kids got even the littlest bit out of mom or dad's vision, they're immediately like yelling, you know, 10 year old, eight year old, five year old, but always calling them by the nicknames that they call them. So for example, rather than saying Matthew, it's, Maddie or Matt, you know, so whatever, I mean, the kids' names have been omitted from all publications, any information out there, um, as are the nicknames, but you get the point. So, um, then the letter mentions an easel that one of the daughters had used in a enclosed porch and it asks the letter asks quote is she the artist of the family and mentions certain details to the point where whoever this person is had to have been fairly close by and at a certain you know a certain angle there were only so many spots where you could be seeing where she was, seeing that she was painting or whatever she was doing. So extra level of creeps. Uh, Then, quote, 
Have they found what's hidden within the walls yet? In time they will. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since young blood since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go alone? Then it goes on to say, basically, I would all I would be afraid. Um, it's far away from the rest of the house, and if they scream, mom or dad can't hear them from anywhere else. Oh hell no. Uh huh. And um, then goes on to say. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. Oh. What in the actual fuck? No. no. You can't you can't start talking to me about plans. No. Mm -mm -mm -mm. So it keeps going. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods, fa the Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. Um, what? I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Bradis family. Again, spelling their name wrong. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving day. You know I will be watching. No. Just. I literally want to throw up. Yeah. This is. This triggers so many of pretty much everyone's fears. Like people watching me that I don't know. I'm just trying to go about and live my life. And now like. I, what? There's no way to know who this person and is threatening your kids there's nothing the police can do with and yeah threatening your kids what the fuck so naturally uh after the second letter uh derek and maria completely stopped bringing the kids there um several weeks later bum 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 a third letter arrives mm. It asks, where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. So, goes on to talk more kind of similar stuff. Where you been? Basically talks continually about the new blood. Ugh. A lot of the same creep factor. And let's see, 
The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room, imagining the life with rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. So I, now I'm like, yeah. is this person a vampire? I can't. I can't <laughs> Ugh. So listen, Nosferatu. Right? Get a job. <laughs> Jesus. Find something else to do. Ugh. bother um the Braddises stay in touch with the woods couple andrea asks um you know they're emailing back and forth talking back and forth trying to figure this out um and andrea says is it a neighbor maybe i mean with all these details you're saying like it kind of seems like it would be someone in the neighborhood that can maybe like maybe we figure out the angles of that those details that were given. And she did not have this experience when she lived there. Nothing. No. Ugh. But it sounds like they never had kids. So um they're figuring this out, trying to see like, okay, is it this house? Is it this house? They can't really figure it out. Can't really nail it down. Um, they're looking at like, okay, where, where, where were the letters mailed from? There's no return address. Okay. Where's the stamp? Cause you know, there's always that like stamp from whoever, whatever mail processing center it first goes into. And it's like, mm -hmm. whatever town. So they were mailed from Kearney or Kearney, um, that was the um, the mail distribution center in New Jersey. So then they start actually, you know, as they're looking at that, because there's always a date on there too when it was stamped. Yeah. So the very first one was postmarked on June 4th. The reason that pertains to anything is it was before the sale of the house was finalized or public or anything and then it was addressed to the new owners though uh-huh it said the new Not uh-huh okay and okay so naturally you're like okay easy you know they saw a for sale sign out there mm, no no they didn't because the woods family never put up a for sale sign it was all hush hush not really hush hush but like all you know to the whole image of the mm -hmm. area. they didn't have to this is the most sought after um the the so then they're like okay 
here's this, you know, till this, you know, the Braddis family says, okay, here's this little interesting detail. Were there other people bidding on the house at the time? Turns out there were a few others, but both of them dropped out because one, they had something like a, an illness come up to where they were deciding not a good time to make a move or a giant purchase like that. We need to focus on this health issue. Mm-hmm. The other family or the other potential buyers um, found a different house. So they just, they pulled out because that one worked better. So it wasn't like someone got uh, outbid and they felt like they had the rug pulled out from under them or anything like that. Right. So now they're kind of like, uh, I don't know. So then um, Derek was talking to one neighbor and this neighbor offers up, hey, have you met or spoken to the Langfords? Because they're, they're kind of weird. <laughs> the mother, Peggy, who is in her 90s at this point, still has the majority of her children living with her at home. Oh, no. Which I'm sure you can imagine if she's in her 90s, that puts them in there. Yeah, they're 60s. Her grown-ass children that are grandpa-grandma age are still living at home. Have never moved out. Don't know about that, but sounds like it. And one of them was thought of as the strange one in the neighborhood. A little off if you will, but overall nice, did occasional favors or nice things like would go and grab their paper from further, you know, closer to the street, bring it up to like, oh, here's your paper, Mr. So-and-so and bring it up to him and like um, little things like that. So maybe less of a you're a weirdo situation and more of a you know, slight um, develop, mental development lag. Um, and the neighbor said he was, quote, kind of a Boo Radley character. Mm. Yeah. Which, if you remember in To Kill a Mockingbird, Boo Radley was the one that was kind of the, you're a weirdo, but not the one that did anything things just got pinned on. So, all right. Derek tells the police, hey, neighbor says this. Did you guys look into them? They're like, I mean, we'll look into it. Sure, fine. Um, they do their half-ass looking into him. But, yeah, nothing is there. There's nothing other than... This is the person that people say, oh, he's not like us, so it's probably them. <laughs> um, police, like I said, don't come up with anything, and they're kind of like, eh, sorry, guys. 
Derek and Maria are like, well, I guess we have to start our own investigation. They end up hiring a few different, quote, professionals for various things like you are good at tracking down this particular avenue of a thing and your specialty is this something or other. And so um, after a while, they actually hire a private private investigator. But alas, by the end of 2014, so reminding this started like the second week of June. And so by the end of 2014, neither the police nor their private investigator or any of the other so-called professionals that they hired could really come up with anything. Um, they, of course, can't really afford to keep up two mortgages for super long. I mean, no matter how rich you are. Well, not no matter, but even though they're well off, they still can't afford two very astronomical mortgages. So they do sell off their first house um, that they were intending to sell a lot sooner. Um, and they move in with Maria's family. Um, they decide about six months after receiving that third letter, we just can't deal with this anymore. We got to sell this house. So they put 657 Boulevard on the market. No shock because there at this point has been all the talk in the neighborhood and outward there's a it's it's become fairly well known at this point in the whole area nobody's trying to buy this house if anybody's trying to look at it it's just because they're trying to see you know the place of the stories they're hearing but not at all trying to buy this house. Absolutely zero people make an offer. They're not able to sell the house until 2019. Oh boy. Five years later. And they sell it at almost a $500,000 loss. Holy shit. Yeah. Ugh. Reminding they bought it for 1.3 mil. So they end up opening a, um, like an LLC so that they can buy a different house, listing the LLC as the owners. Because at this point, they are freaked the fuck out. Like, what if the watcher follows us? What if... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they don't want anything to be public. So they open, you know, this little company so they can get a loan and get a, a place to live, buy a house. And um, basically just try to move on with their lives. In the end, because one... Um, the police, uh, experience, if you will, in Westfield area, um, was not necessarily of a high crime nature, 
they, it was like the top third, it was like the 33rd most safe city in America or something crazy like that at the time. Um, anyway, so, you know, they're ex the cops of the area, their experience on, you know, things to do, like I said earlier, was at most usually like parking issues or, you know, someone driving in the area that doesn't belong there or, you know, things like that. Uh, there was one person they investigated for a super short amount of time because there was a car suspiciously parked outside their home for a little bit too long. Um, they figure out who the owner of it is. It's this uh, chick that her boyfriend lives in the area. And they, when they're, inter you know, trying to talk to her and ask her questions, asking her, do you know, you know, anything about this family being stalked, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I'm just here, you know, hanging. I was over at my boyfriend's house, you know, and what were you guys doing? And, oh, well, he was playing his video game. He's really into this one game and blah, 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 blah. And they're asking questions, you know, details about everything. And um, I guess his name in this game is The Watcher. But, um, at this point, the worst thing that is happening is this family is getting letters. I mean, you know, realistically, a family is receiving letters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certain details are very creepy, you know, that someone is watching them. But also, there is a possibility these letters are being embellished. And there's no traceable way to figure out who they're coming from. At one point, they do some DNA, you know, swabs, and they come up with female DNA. But also, what we know now versus then is that, you know, that could just be contact tracing. Like, that could mm -hmm. be anyone that handled that within the whole, you know, U.S. mail service program from... Kearney down to, you know, Westfield. So, again, like, not enough evidence, not much of anything that could be pointing to anything. So, it is still technically unsolved. Family moved on. Um, in 2018, Netflix bought the rights to this story. Um, the cut is who really broke this story into like essentially existence. They, they followed it quite a bit and their article was purchased and, um, it's actually either just about to start filming or just recently started filming they're doing, so far, it's going to be a mini-series um, starring Naomi Watts as Maria and Bobby Cannavale, I'm probably saying that wrong, um, as Derek. 
which I, I don't know who he is, but I really like Naomi Watts. So oh my god, Bobby uh, Cannavale. He's been in a lot of things. He was in Boardwalk Empire. He is really good at being on the edge. Like he takes his acting very far. Um, he's willing to do a lot for his role. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's no date yet of when it's supposed to, um, like be released, but supposedly filming was set to start late summer, mid to late summer. So of this year. I'm looking at pictures of the house right now. It's a very nice house. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. Like I said, six bedrooms. Um, colonial style. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah. Definitely. Dang. Yeah. A dream home for sure. Um, but uh, the person that is signed up to do this series like the director it's a netflix limited series from ryan murphy that's the name i was trying to think of and his frequent collaborator ian brennan ryan murphy's behind a lot of you know those kind of creepy um type shows and movies American Horror Story, that's the one I was trying to think of. Murphy does all the American Horror Stories. Um, and he's got a current crazy huge contract with Netflix that he's he's done quite a few things. Um, apparently, he was behind the Jeffrey Dahmer Story limited series. Um... Uh, yeah, lots of different things on Netflix. Um, very, very good at bringing a story to life. So it's going to be interesting to see <clears throat> how much they're able to, you know, bring reality into it of, you know, the, the letters. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, the, you know, the Brannon, the, the, sorry, the Broadus family actually helps them at all with anything with the story. So either way, I'm a very big American horror story fan. So I'm, I have high hopes. Speaking of, they just did an offshoot called American horror stories. Oh, and it's three episodes deep. I've been watching and they're very good. The third episode, well, I don't know if it technically stars, but in my eyes it does. Um, Adrian Barbeau from like The Fog and um, uh, Escape from New York. Uh, and those movies, you, anyway, you would know who she is if you saw her. I think she's great, but she's amazing in the episode. Very cool. It was, nice. it was a nice callback to old school horror. Good job, Ryan Murphy. Are they current? Yes. Oh, okay. So 
so I'll have to wait a bit. We got rid of all of our cable type stuff. Now we're just all streaming services. Well, they're ne it's on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been watching it on Netflix. Okay. Very good. Stories. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't so sure about it at first, but I dig it. It's pretty spooky. Brad Falchuk and Ryan Murphy. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, so um, I don't know if my story was better, like lighthearted wise, but just kind of a different kind of, um, you know, more of the creepy versus, oh my God, awful. <laughs> so what you're saying is that everyone's going to have very well-rounded nightmares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We help Perfect. everybody here to help <laughs> giving your nightmares some depth <laughs> oh man well i think we ought to call it we do and what is today this is our august episode yeah last of the every single week i mean technically this is the first of the once a month ones yes whatever you want to call it whatever so unless you subscribe to our patreon mm -hmm. um you I'm will not so hear from us again until september yeah yeah so this is the august episode the august podcast um our patreon is not expensive no <laughs> it's not we're but cheap dates guys i'm super excited for our our plans for our patreon episode i've i've already been thinking about mm -hmm. the things i'm bringing to the table and in some cases you'll actually get to see us so mm -hmm. that'll be fun yeah we have to decide if this episode is going to be a, a visual mm -hmm. hmm. we'll discuss <laughs> We will. We'll let you know. All right. Well, um, until next month. <laughs> so wild. Yeah. Drink good local beer and. You're welcome for all those nightmares you're going to have now. <laughs> Bye. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap. Email at sheattleontap at gmail.com or our website, sheattleontap.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And all of the Seattle on Tap original music is provided by Bubble Bathism, courtesy of the Subterranot Recording Collective. <laughs>